How's it going, everyone? This is Glenn Gare from the Cast, which is the official podcast of the Northeastern Evolutionary Psychology Society. Um, the Cast is designed to uh, increase the um, outreach efforts of NEEPS, and so we're reaching out to several folks associated with the NEEPS community. And today on the show, we're fortunate to have um, renowned evolutionary biologist, Dr. Robert Trivers, uh, Trivers, um, Dr. Trivers has written several key articles and other uh, scholarly works, including a great book in 1985 um, called Social Evolution um, and, and other books as well. And he's got a storied career in the field. Um, he spoke at NEEPS in Boston in 2015 um, as one of our invited speakers. And uh, Dr. Trivers, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, so... One of the core ideas that we're interested in in NEEPS uh, pertains to evolution. So obviously there's lots of different versions of what evolution is or what the core ideas are. I'd be very curious to hear your take on the basic definition of evolution and its implications. Uh, well, that's not quite my forte definitions, but... It's evolution through natural selection is the key. So uh, evolution in its larger sense is simply change over time. And that's usually morphological change over time because that's what the fossil record preserves. Now, with the bursting forth of genetics, uh, we can actually genotype uh, the bacteria in the mouth of Neanderthals, uh, say, 80,000 years ago. So when we talk about evolution now, we can sometimes talk about the actual uh, genetic uh, evolution, not, not just morphological. Sure. That's the field of genomics. But the key concept in all of biology is natural selection. And it has not changed uh, since Darwin. It got enlarged slightly uh, twice. Uh, and I'll come back to that. But let's go to the simple uh, essence of natural selection. And that is very, very simple. In all species in nature, some individuals leave many surviving offspring, uh, and many leave. Uh, fewer none. And by definition, the inheritable traits, what we would now call the genetic traits of those leaving sur many surviving offsprings, spring increase in number, while those leaving fewer none decrease in number. So that's the key evolutionary change that results from the key concept of natural selection. So over evolutionary time, and we now know that that's virtually 4 billion years, mm -hmm. natural selection has been knitting together in all species, viruses, bacteria, protozoa, invertebrates, vertebrates, plants, and so on. It has been knitting together genes that tend to increase the survival and reproduction of those with the genes. Mm -hmm. So it increases their 
reproductive success, as I like to call it. Uh, in classical genetics, it's fitness. Mm-hmm. But fitness has multiple meanings. You can be physically fit. You can be morally fit. You can be fit in various ways. And indeed, there's been confusion at times uh, regarding the multiple meanings of fitness. So I prefer reproductive success because that says it exactly. In any case, um, natural selection knits together uh, genes that increase the reproductive success of those with the genes. Mm-hmm. Fine. Uh, now, what are the changes since then? The first change, uh, very important, was Hamilton's 1964 extension uh, of uh, reproductive success or fitness to include uh, other relatives, not just children, but for example, siblings. So you are related to your full sibling under outbreeding by a half, and you are related to your children under outbreeding by a half. So therefore, if you were to add more siblings to the next generation than children, your genes would be favored, even though by classical natural selection, they would be disfavored. So inclusive fitness is fitness that is reproductive success plus effects on the reproductive success of relatives devalued by one's degree of relatedness to them. So you are related to full siblings by half, but half siblings by only a quarter, cousins by only an eighth, and so forth and so on. And then finally, there was a small twist to all of this by David Haig when he came up with the explanation for genomic imprinting. And these are genes which um, uh, were not envisioned at the founding of genetics. Uh, We thought of a gene as being active in you, uh, regardless of which parent it came from. It's the same gene, so it's gonna be active or inactive. No, there are some genes that are only active if you inherited them from the mother, and there are also some genes that are active only if inherited from the father, and that sets up internal conflict between the two inside you because your maternal genes will emphasize mother and her relatives while your paternal genes inside you will emphasize dad and his relatives. So far as I know, that's it. There's been no change in our understanding of natural selection uh, other than that. Sure. So natural selection is really at the core of all modern evolutionary approaches to understanding all kinds of life-related phenomena. Um, and I think you've summarized it very well, as well as the, the more recent advances. So let me ask you this. Um, the, the idea of evolutionary psychology is, in short, the idea of evolution applied to behavioral phenomena which is something that you've written about extensively. So maybe if you could sort of summarize um, the, what you see as the connection between natural selection and behavior. 
And what? And behavior, broadly construed. Well, I mean, it's it's the same whether you're talking about behavior or morphology or or genes themselves. That is, behavior uh, is, is going to be selected for those behaviors or the genes that lead to those behaviors that increase your reproductive success or more broadly increase your inclusive fitness. So there's nothing special about behavior. Uh, I mean, you know, it tends to uh, put special emphasis on the um, nervous system, the brain, uh, the neural connections. Uh, but we already know that behavior runs deeper than we thought. Mm -hmm. uh, let me give you an, a recent example. And... Uh, I published a paper way back in 19, whatever the hell it was, 91 or something, that even raised the question of whether plants were conscious. And people poo-pooed that and said, oh, my God, you know, he's, he's uh, consumed too much or too little of uh, something he likes to smoke. Uh, so now, however, uh, Jesus Christ, um, uh, petals of flowers uh, make sounds, they vibrate, and those vibrations communicate with the bees that come in there to pollinate the plant. Now, we've known for uh, at least 30 years that plants will produce warning calls, so to speak. Uh, we think of warning calls as a behavior in animals where I bark and warn other members uh, of the group, but really uh, other relatives of mine, that there's a danger. And if they're a Belding's ground squirrel, they ought to run and go down in the uh, earth uh, where they can hide from the predator. All right, so that's so plants give warning calls in the sense that if a plant is being eaten by some insects, it will give off a pheromone that is a chemical signal into the atmosphere, which other trees will respond to. And their response is to increase uh, chemicals that are antithetical to the bugs or insects uh, eating uh, the tree. So it's a warning call. So there's communication. So they're capable of, beg your pardon? So it's a form of communication. Exactly. And that's tree to tree. And now we've got flowers, uh, uh, petals, just by vibrating, they're communicating, you know, uh, with their, uh, like I say, with their pollinators. So yep. behavior, behavior can be very deep and broad and does not require a nervous system. We don't con conventionally uh, look for neurons inside trees hmm. nor inside the flowers of hmm. uh, bushes or, or plants. Sure. Okay. So, so behavior, behavioral adaptations and behavior 
construed in terms of natural selection is no different than understanding natural selection in a broader sense, I think is what I'm hearing you say. In principle, yes, there's, there's no difference. Now, I'll make a side comment here, and I'm not sure you want to hear it and, you know, shut me up or, or steer me in the direction you want. Bring it. But um, I've, I've been averse to uh, naming new areas of evolutionary biology. So I dislike the term sociobiology. And if and you were kind enough to refer to my textbook, Social Evolution, which was a disaster as a textbook. And my God, I was looking at it the other day and I thought, what on earth uh, went through your head? Mo most people had never even heard of sex ratio theory. And I've got a whole chapter or section on it. And I've even got uh, uh, sex ratios, environmental sex determination. And the other day I was writing uh, something and I had to look up and, and, and remember, I knew turtles were a group that was in fact, uh, sex ratios at conception were often affected by the environment, but I couldn't remember which way the correlation went. So I, I, I'm down here in Jamaica. I don't have uh, access to a modern library. I just hauled out social evolution because I had a whole section on it. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the book is now referred to over 3,500 times because it, it, you know, it, it, uh, it dove for the bottom and was discontinued, but then it became more and more useful to people when they caught up with it, so to speak. Mm -hmm. In any case, never mind. Uh, when I wrote that book, uh, was about the time sociobiology came out. And, or maybe no, sociobiology had already come out. And I never used the word sociobiology once because it was just this old Harvard professor game, in this case, Ed Wilson, whom I genuinely liked as an organism, although I had considerable reservations about his capacity to think carefully. Um, it's the old game of naming a discipline and then you become the father of the discipline. And I would see endless references to Ed Wilson as the father of sociobiology. And I would say, no, he's the father of the word sociobiology. Sure. And sociobiology was simply a branch of evolutionary biology. Yeah. And it was not advantageous to act as if it had its own coherent structure separate from the rest of evolutionary biology. It did not. And so likewise, evolutionary psychology, uh, be and Cosmides and one or two others, they, they want to make it uh, a, a, a field of its own, you know. Now, you, you can understand in psychology, you have developmental psychology, you have, you have uh, cognitive, you have... Uh, uh, psychiatric psychology, you know, Freudian psychology, blah, blah, blah. So you could have evolutionary psychology. But they wanted to, again, make a separate discipline for it. So you had the environment of evolutionary adaptation, EEA. And then you had the claim that we evolved to fit the environment of evolutionary adaptation, which was basically hunter-gatherers. Right. And that there had been a negligible evolution since then. And I knew that that was uh, bound to be false. 
because selection pressures are very strong and continue to be strong. And uh, 40,000 years or 20,000 years, that's a lot of years. Uh, that's a lot of generations. Uh, 3,000 years is 100 generations. Mm -hmm. And if you have a selection pressure of only uh, 1% or 2% advantage, uh, give it 100 generations, and it'll go from 1% way down up there to 80% or so mm -hmm. in no time. And we've learned since then, we used to model things as 1%. But my God, we can, we can hardly find a gene that only has a 1% mm. effect. 5% is much more common and so on. And so there's a whole literature now um, on selection during the last 40,000 years. And it started taking off uh, before agriculture and before animal husbandry. But it then accelerated then further. Hmm. So with agri because there was an increasing density of uh, humans, which started about 40,000 years ago, and then every 10,000 years, it's, it's increasing by an order of magnitude. And then when you have agriculture, it increases by one or two orders of magnitude. And then you have cities, and then you have nations, and so forth. So there are orders of magnitude increase in population density. Now, one effect of that is, is that it it's, uh, makes it very, much more easy for parasites to spread. Parasites love high density. Hmm, sure. I mean, cons consider simple things like malaria and mosquitoes. If human beings are spread apart, the, a mosquito bites me, I've got malaria, but you you're 500 yards away, it ain't going to reach you. Or it it's very rare that it's going to reach you. So it's not going to spread from me to you. But if we're all living in a, in, a, in, a, in a little agricultural area, it bites me and all it has to do is move over 10 yards and bite mm -hmm. you. And the same thing for parasites that are transmitted in a variety of different ways. By water, for example, once your density of humans increases uh, two or three orders of magnitude, uh, water uh, now will transmit waterborne parasites mm -hmm. from one set of humans to another. So uh, what I find is that the, uh, the people wanting to rope off areas uh, instead of emphasizing, hey, this is all evolutionary biology. These are all just different mm -hmm. branches. Mm -hmm. That what they do is they tend to invent <coughs> concepts um, or uh, terms. that they think are unique to, beg your pardon? Or terms. Yeah, yeah, or terms. But the terms are presumably backed up by some kind of concept, you know. Sure. So EEA. But it's, it limits your thinking. It doesn't expand it. Hmm. And it's, it's, again, pretense because you want to be known as the founder of, of uh, evolutionary psychology. So, so you know, anyway, I'm, one, of the I'm examples, against it. one of the examples of what you're talking about that I was um, addressing in my class just the other day is that, you know, there's, there's kind of an idea, and some students will say, oh, is, isn't evolutionary psychology this relatively new field or this new idea? 
Um, you know, and what I what I tell them is I say, look, Darwin wrote a book in 1872, the expression of emotion in man and animals, and I'm like, that entire book is evolutionary psychology. You know, so this is this is an idea that goes. Like you were saying, it goes way back to Darwin's original ideas on, on natural selection. And I think like you, he didn't really discriminate between behavior and morphology as, you know, one is related to natural selection and the other not. So I, I agree with you that I, I feel like these basic ideas go way back. Well, I think uh, not to blow smoke up your behind or nothing, but I think that's a very good example. It uh, doesn't come to mind frequently because it's been a number of years since I've read that book of Darwin's. I read all of them except uh, probably uh, maybe he wrote a book on Beatles or something that I didn't read. Mm. But it, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, very good point. Uh, and, you know, um, uh, well, you don't know, but... Uh, recently, uh, I've had to learn more about viruses, and um, they're fascinating. You know, it's a whole fascinating world that I've never mastered. There are, as you probably know, RNA viruses. There are DNA viruses. There are single-strand viruses. There are double-strand viruses. There, you know, and so there's a whole world, of course, of viruses. My God. And uh, as for bacteria, they run the world. Uh, they've recently confirmed that they, they run down about, oh, about uh, 5,000, uh, is it meters or feet uh, below the surface? Not below the ocean surface, below the hard surface mm. that we're standing on. And uh, uh, my professor... Uh, years and years ago, back when we thought a nuclear holocaust, well, generally people thought a nuclear holocaust was was our biggest threat to wipe us out, but he was he was ahead of his time. And he said, right. no, he said, uh, it'll be ecological disaster. It'll be us eating the planet out of house and home, hmm. uh, ex expanding in numbers and so forth and so on. And, and now we see, of course, what I doubt he was, onto global warming. Oh my sweet mm. Jesus, you know. It's a problem. Did you see the pictures the other day of uh, these horses, like uh, uh, 15 horses dead in Australia because the water hole is dried up? No, but that's pretty terrible. It is terrible. And the temperatures in Australia, my God, brother. Mm. They've gone up to, uh, what were they? They were averaging about 110 degrees, and then they shot up to 118 in some areas. Now, that's unpleasant. Yeah. And anyway. Absolutely. Go so, ahead. What's your, well, what's your next question? You know, I, I had a different question written down, but hearing you speak about global warming and about sort of threats, you know, to humanity in some bigger sense. Let me, I'm going to actually ask you a, a slightly different question than I was going to, which is, is this, um, there's a lot of discussion in academia these days regarding academic freedom and the connection between politics and scholarship and this kind of thing. And I, I've been involved in various discussions on the topic of whether the purpose of a university is 
singularly to advance knowledge and or to what extent is the purpose of a university and our scholarship to essentially help make the world, quote, a better place. And I feel like that discussion of global warming to some extent sits at that nexus. So I guess, you know, Dr. Bob Trivers, what, what are your thoughts on the function, the ultimate goal of the university in terms of those different issues? Well, I don't really have a thought there. I, you know, I think in, in theory they're, they're closely intertwined and you don't have to fret about uh, differentiating them. Of course, when you have the idiots that we have uh, running this country and, and uh, even before they, uh, Trump came to power, you had idiots out there in Oklahoma that made a point of denying global warming and acting as if it was a hoax. And you and I know that science doesn't work that way. Right. If you and I, if, if I visited you and we spent uh, for five hours together and we realized, Jesus Christ, there's a flaw in the global warming argument that nobody has realized except you and me. Oh, you and I would be dancing around the uh, table, right? <laughs> and and we couldn't wait to publish it. So the notion that you would have 200,000 scientists right. who sign a board to a hoax is, is so absurd if you know anything about how science works. Right. So the pursuit of the truth, you know, through the usual rigorous methodology, and it has, you know, there's a whole sub-literature now on on false positives, and they're much more frequent in psychology right. than they are in so-called harder sciences. But uh, leaving that aside, uh, they get corrected. Yeah. You know, you, 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 you sweep the trash off the table at regular intervals. What I find uh, dreadful uh, is a different problem, and it's probably not one you want to waste your time on uh, on a podcast on evolution, but just in, in two sentences, if I can pull it up in that. Uh, there's an extraordinary uh, movement in U.S. universities away from the classical structure where the professors were in charge and the administration was basically there to help the professors. Mm -hmm. Now the administration has taken over and has given itself more and more powers and has expanded and it's shrinking the faculty. Mm -hmm. So you have two things going on simultaneously. You have less, less courses being taught by tenured or non-tenured, tenured track professors, let's say and more and more taught by adjunct professors. Why? Because if you're tenure track, and even if you're just an assistant professor, you're earning between 40 and 60,000 a year to teach, you know, two to maximum four courses. Whereas an adjunct professor, Christ Almighty, they pay them 5,000. If they're lucky. Uh, right, and, and on the other side, uh, when I was hired by Rutgers in 94, there was a dean. When I left, there was an executive dean, and underneath him, there were five deans. 
So he yeah. gets a raise, yep. and all of those other five get a raise. And the expansion of the administrative side of universities has been extraordinary. It's amazing. All the, it, all the graphs uh, totally corroborate exactly what you're saying. It's not a secret by any means. You're totally right on this. Oh, no. I know it's not a secret. And it's just... In, in school after school, I mean, I've, I've talked with my good friend David Egg at Harvard, and he tells me uh, grotesque stories from Harvard, you know, mm -hmm. so everywhere. Um, and, and, um, and administrative glut. That's, I think, the, that's, what that, that's what we're talking about. Administrative what? Glut, G-L-U-T. You don't hear the word glut often yeah. enough, but that's what it is. Yeah. I'll give you my only little joke on it. I can't figure out whether the best concept is it's a parasite that's expanding at the expense of the rest of us, or is it a cancer hmm. uh, also ex expanding at the cost oh, of the right. rest of us? Yeah. Absolutely. Anyway. Absolutely. I'd love to see some university, especially a public university, put that front and center take steps to change that and, and, and serve as a model for the rest of us saying, look, it doesn't have to be the, that way and here's what we can do. So let's, uh, right. let's see if that, if, if we can see that happen. Um, so, so wrapping up, um, this has been a, a great conversation. I love hearing your, your thoughts on all kinds of things, which I think is uh, a strength of your, yourself as a person, and as a scholar, as you've got, um, you've really got a lot of great experiences and you're happy to talk on all kinds of topics. So, as a final question, um, one of the missions of NEEPS is all about future scholars, you know, cultivating um, things for students, for graduate students, undergrads, um, you know, for junior faculty members. We're really interested in, in, you know, people studying evolution and behavior and sort of helping inspire and, and you know, do what we can to support the next generation of, of scholars and thinkers in this field. So with that said, um, what are some of your thoughts? What would be um, a, an inspirational message that you might have for, for young scholars in the field of evolution and behavior? Well, I don't think I have much to say on that. Um, I... I did my basic work on social theory uh, based on natural selection. I walked into an incredible opportunity. Nobody had done anything. A uh, hundred and uh, plus years of thinking that uh, selection favored what was good for the species, right. which was the dominant paradigm. I mean, yes, Fisher and Haldane knew better, uh, and Hamilton sure did, but a whole bunch of people didn't. Right. So nobody had done uh, reciprocity or reciprocal altruism. Uh, parental investment in sexual selection was the first general theory for the evolution of sex differences in all species. And it is now cited uh, more than 14,000 times. And I recently read a paper on the 100 most cited papers uh, in the history of science with uh, out of 35 million and mine is right up there near the very top That's okay great. 
I've cited it dozens of times myself, by the way. What's that? I have cited that piece it's, dozens of times. God, God bless you. <laughs> <laughs> and let me just say, God bless you. Yeah. Uh, but it's uh, it's they've scaled the whole thing to Mount Everest, which is twenty nine thousand ninety feet. I've learned, mm-hmm. and so they've scaled it like if there were thirty million papers, and one page for each. Uh, you scale it. So I'm, I'm about uh, uh, less than an inch from the top. Mm-hmm. So that means if you climb to ten thousand feet, then you got your your oxygen tanks and your and your um, Nepalese uh, uh, guides. The Sherpas. And sure. you climbed all the way to the top, and you stubbed your toe. An inch from the top, you'd be kicking parental investment and sexual selection. <laughs> so for, forgive me, forgive me. No, that's a great so back, memory. Yeah, back to uh, young scholars. I I really don't have anything. I mean, genomics is is taking off. Uh, uh, genetics. I was very fortunate when I finished my uh, work on social theory, and I just want to do something new, I decided to work on, within individual genetic conflict, most people were going the other way, group selection, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, which is generally still a fairly empty or barren field, in my opinion. But uh, within individual genetic conflict, no, that's enormous. And it took uh, a co-author harder working, uh, very bright, Austin Bird. But uh, one advantage was that I actually learned genetics. And so I'm in a position to appreciate this new work, you know. I don't do genomics, but I can understand it when it's Mm -hmm. done. I don't know whether you saw a recent article, uh, Glenn, on uh, the genomics of monogamous mammals. So they just went through all the mammals and just called out the monogamous ones from the non-monogamous and then did a study of what genes they shared in common, the monogamous ones. And it's incredible. You know, it's mm. fascinating. And they they know which ones are more active uh, in the monogamous and which ones are being suppressed. And so it gives you an image anyway. I don't have a. I don't have a advice. I'm afraid for young, young minds. You know, they should work hard. For, you know, they. Yeah. The, well, the classic one is uh, uh, work on something you're interested in and good at. True. And they they don't always. They're not always the same. You know, you can be interested in something, but just not have the talent to do it yourself. Or you can have the talent, but you're not interested. But, you know, try to find something you're really interested in and which you also have the necessary talent to do. Well, I think that works for sure. I think that the the people listening, especially the the junior people and NEEPs listening, will get an awful lot out of this. And uh, I really appreciate having you on the show, Dr. Trevor. So thank you so much for your time. And well, you're most you're most welcome, Glenn. And then I want to ask you a question. 
Of course. That is not part of this podcast. Okay. So tell me when I can do that. Okay. Well, let me wrap this up. Um, again, everyone, this has been right. Dr. Dr. Bob Trivers, and this has been the Neeps Cast. Thank you so much for listening.